0: Welcome to The Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. My guest today is Shadi Hamid. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and a contributing editor to The Atlantic. He is an author of a a number of books and articles. Uh, The latest book is Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. Um, Frequent writer and speaker on the intersection of modern Islam and its uh, conflict uh, often with the West. Um, And uh, so, Shadi, welcome. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Um, it's it's a joy to talk to you, and I, I find your work fascinating and uh, your your point of view um, interesting. And we're a journal of you know Christianity and American foreign policy, so um, eyebrows may even be raised. Of why <laughs> why is sh- you know Shadi Hamid on 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 this? And but I think that hopefully over the course of the conversation it will become clear that there is is, is common ground. I think that we share. I think intellectually. Um, about the role of religion in the public space. And so um, I, want, I would love to just hear from you a little bit of how you even got into the position that you're into and articulating this uh, unique uh, perspective and arguing for Islamic exceptionalism. And we'll talk maybe a little bit about what that is. But uh, how did you get into this uh, particular realm?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, one of the formative moments for me was 9-11. And uh, I was actually a freshman in undergrad uh, that year went. So ju- I was living away from home for the first time, trying to figure out what my identity was. And then, three weeks into my freshman year, 9 11 happens and it really shifts me in a particular direction. And on some level, as both an American and a Muslim, it was a tragedy on, on two levels, in a sense, as an American, of course, but also as a Muslim, trying to make sense of how those who claim to be of my faith could commit such horrifying acts and to kind of that's not an easy thing to process when uh, when you're that young and you're trying to figure out a bunch of other things and that that politicized me it made me more interested in the relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East and one of my realizations at that point was whatever else you think about um, 9-11, the aftermath, even the Iraq war, that whole period, it was clear to most people that there was something fundamentally wrong and broken in the relationship between the US and the Middle East. Something wasn't going right. So I think a lot of us at that point were asking, what went wrong? Why has the Middle East become so dysfunctional, chaotic, unstable? Why is it producing this level of extremism and terrorism? And what I was trying to look at some of the the uh, the root causes, if you will. And one question that interested me was the the u s. has uh, was starting to do better when it came to supporting democracy in other regions of the world. Latin America, Asia, parts of Africa there was previous support of authoritarian regimes during the Cold War, but then you start to see this openness to supporting nascent democratic movements, but not in the Middle East. Why in the Middle East did we continue to support authoritarian regimes? That's the question that really started to drive me. And one answer to that question was, well, We support democracy in theory as Americans, but not necessarily in practice. There's a gap here. And we're afraid of who might come to power through free and fair elections in the Middle East. I wanted to understand who those people were, who those parties were, why were we afraid of them, how afraid of them should we be? And those groups are Islamist movements, Islamist parties, like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt being the most prominent example. And that led me actually to study the Muslim Brotherhood on the ground. I lived in Jordan for a year, 2004, 2005. And part of what my research project was uh, as a Fulbright Fellow there was to try to understand what animates the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood. And my kind of style of research is, even if you disagree profoundly with the group, even if you don't like the Brotherhood or hate their ideology or think they're bad, if you wanna understand them, you have to sit down and talk to them. So I spent a lot of time hanging out with members and leaders of the Jordanian Brotherhood, and that was my entry point into a lot of these questions of how do we deal with the role of Islam in politics in these very contentious, situations, and um, these are countries where Islamist parties tend to do quite well in elections, so it's always there. It's always there as part of the debate, and since then, yeah.
0: So it's it's interesting, you talk about your methodology of, of even you know, uh, parlaying with people who you have extreme disagreement or you may even think could be dangerous, you know, uh, ideologically. And what was fascinating about uh, 9-11, tragic in a way, is that, you know, prior to 9-11, Islam was... uh, uh, it's kind of this distant perhaps menacing i mean you know we always had you know the first iraq war and uh, you know iran contra and the revolution and the hostages i mean there's there's always some kind of distant rumblings of it potentially being you know difficult but in america still there was there was very much a presence of just you know you could be muslim you yeah. could be christian you know america's pluralistic it's it's but it is also a very religious country um, and yet 911 is this moment in which all of a sudden everyone became obsessed with islam right yeah. i mean it it's it became every headline every there were there were riots people burning qurans there were i mean you know people didn't even know what the quran was you know prior yeah, to 911 right, right i mean there's exactly. a, um, i remember in the late 90s you know reading foreign affairs uh you know magazine uh talking about uh this guy named Osama bin laden you know but it, it you it wasn't on the front page of the new york times right it was yeah. in like a foreign affairs journal it was kind of buried deep and it wasn't on the american consciousness consciousness so um how have you seen, uh, since your life spans that and bridges that kind of that cataclysm and that changing moment in culture, I mean, how do you see um, Islam changing in America and America's relation to Islam? Obviously, there there's a greater hostility, right, that came about because of 9-11. Uh, but then I think there was also, um, and this is where I think some of your recent work and conversation is really fascinating, there was this tendency to be, believe, in, even in a place like America... That's pluralistic and uh, you know relig- religiously tolerant for the most part, to say, all right, wait, wait a minute, what do we mean by religious toler- you know tolerance? What do we mean by uh, pluralism? What do we mean by allowing just you know anyone, even if they are Muslim? Muslims are the ones that attacked us and killed thousands of people. Like, what does it mean it to allow them to just occupy, you know, the space in our country uh, unhindered and allowed with religious freedom. So, I mean, talk a little bit about how you saw the maybe the change in the debate, the change in the culture, changing attitudes uh, as a Muslim um, towards Islam on the part of, you know, Americans, maybe even Christians, in the, yeah. on the Christian so it's, right. It's
1: interesting what you mentioned that pre-911, you know, Muslims, people weren't paying that much attention. They didn't know a lot about Islam. That was my own experience, that in high school in the late 90s, Um, There was, uh, you know, I joke about it, 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 it's not great, but there was this one one classmate of mine who used to pick on me a little bit, and uh, he'd occasionally call me terrorist, but in a kind of, I actually, I don't remember being super offended, because I was almost, I was almost in a way impressed. He knows enough about the the overall global situation that he knows that there's like a terrorism issue in the Middle East, because before 9-11 that wasn't a very prominent point of conversation. Muslims were different, but no one was that concerned about us, right? And then 9-11 changes that in a very uh, profound way. Um, so what I, what, what I try to do in my work uh, to some extent is to distinguish between Muslim majority context and Muslim minority context. And maybe I'll just say a word about um, how it's different. So when, when we're talking about the Middle East, we um, and I've made this argument about Islam being exceptional, and uh, that that has been a controversial argument, and folks have attacked me for it sometimes, especially in light uh, in light of the Trump era, where there's a there's a lot of anti-Muslim bigotry. So one of my concerns when my book came out was if I'm talking about how Islam is fundamentally different than other religions in these particular ways might people take that and say, well, if Islam is different, then it's bad. And then it has to be sort of marginalized or regulated or monitored or something like that. And, you know, so I've tried to be careful about what the actual implications of my argument are. I mean, first of all, when I talk about this exceptionalism, I'm talking about how Islam has proven to be resistant to secularization. Um, and will and will likely continue to be resistant to secularization, and we're we're seeing that in practice and in in much of the Muslim majority world, Islam does play an outsized role in public life, so it's not exceptional. All religions are different from each other. I mean, that's the whole point of religion. Otherwise, what what, what would be the purpose of each of us choosing different religions, right? But Islam is is different in this in this in how it relates to law, politics, and governance. And some of that relates to the founding moment of Islam, that Prophet Muhammad wasn't just a, um, a prophet or, or a theologian or, or a cleric. Uh, he was also a politician. He was also a head of a proto-state. He was a state builder. So that has implications for how Islam develops. So when you're thinking about what the Quran says, and regardless of whether someone believes the Quran is from God or for man or whatever, any revelation has to speak to the particular context of the people it's being revealed to. So if, mo- if the early Muslims are dealing with questions of governance and state, then the Quran has to have something to say about that, right? On the other hand, um, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ wasn't in a position to govern and the early Christians weren't in a position to govern. That only became an issue several centuries later. So it would be weird if the New Testament had a lot to say about public law and governance. It doesn't have a lot to say about those issues. So that's one way of looking at some of the contrast there. So then when we're talking about the Middle East, the big issue is if Islam plays this public role, then... My approach is to say, instead of trying to repress that role or marginalize that role, we have to be realistic and look at the world as it is, so we have to think about ways to try to accommodate that public role for Islam, obviously within limits, and obviously there, there have to be limits on what majorities can do to minorities, so on and so forth. But we can't just assume that secularism is the way forward for the Middle East and assume that Islam will follow the same trajectory as Christianity of going through the phases of reformation, enlightenment, secularization, because if Islam is fundamentally different than Christianity, then it's not going to follow the same course. So that's how I would talk about it in the Middle Eastern context. Now, when we're talking about the U.S., the U.S. is quite different because Muslims are a minority. There's no real risk of Muslims implementing Sharia law and making the U.S. into an Islamic state. I mean, sometimes you'll hear that from some fringes of the far right, but it's not its not a serious argument, right? And this is why I think that um, the U.S. case is so interesting because it does, its it's in it's a model of how, to, uh, of how to accommodate a Muslim minority. And part of that has to do with the free exercise of religion, um, the power and strength of our constitution and the first amendment. So my experience as an American Muslim is that you don't have to choose between being fully Muslim and being fully American because America is more comfortable with public religiosity. At least it has been, maybe that's changing now. And that, that allows Muslims to have this more secure place in public life because Amer- Americans are familiar with evangelicals, with Orthodox Jews, so it's not a foreign idea for people to be visibly religious, right? Where Europe, that is a problem and you have this very, um, this very sometimes aggressive secularism. Uh, So I think what it comes down to is that Islam plays different roles in different contexts. And a key question is, are Muslims a minority? Are they a majority? But one thing that I've tried to do in my own work is to really challenge this idea that a lot of secular Westerners have, that if a religion is playing a role in public life, that, that that's automatically bad. It's not necessarily bad. Um, and I think that um, readers and, and listeners, readers of Providence and listeners of Provcast, will be aware of that. That um, religion can play a positive role in public life. So when I talk about, well, Islam, Islam is very public. Islam has this political role that can certainly be bad in some respects, and we've seen examples of conflict in the Middle East. But Um, It can also be good, and many Muslims draw strength from the fact that Islam does have a lot to say about the public realm.
0: So what I find interesting about your, uh, one of several of your arguments, you said a lot right there, there. so I (laughs) want to try and unpack some of it, is uh, what I really, truly appreciate. Um, about your point of view, why we we ask you to write for Providence, why we are talking to you now, and why I, I love being able to kind of give you a platform to talk because I there is a synergy between what you're talking about and I think what the mission of uh, Providence is, which is to speak into um, a really uh, a space that's dominated by secularism, the foreign policy space, the foreign affairs space, um, and you have so many. Um, uh, People within that space, practitioners and politicians and diplomats who are kind of um, drunk on progressivism and drunk on, uh, you know, secularism that to the extent to which they they have this tendency, this this uh, 21st century liberal tendency to try and flatten the world out and uh, homogenize all of it and turn it into, well, we're all, all religions are the same. You know, you said earlier, they're, of course they're different, but there are there are people in there saying, no, it's, it's really all the same and it's really all irrelevant, right? What really matters is economics, what really matters is, is politics, and, and, you know, whether it's a political system of Marxism versus, you know, capitalism or whatever, and so what we exist for is to, to speak into the space and say, no, 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 religion really matters, and religions are really different. And adhering to one religion over another is going to have real world implications that may make you feel uncomfortable. You know, There are tons of aspects of, of Islam that make me feel really uncomfortable <laughs> as a Christian. Um, and I'm sure there are no shortage of Muslims out there that would feel really uncomfortable of Christianity and, and, and the West and even secular uh, secularism, um, and yet, You've got to deal with it. This is the real world. This is realism, yeah. right? You've got to confront it, and um, the the extent to which in the past that we have ignored that and just sort of said, "Well, you know, these things don't matter. We're going to go and just create, you know, uh, uh, the fifty first state somewhere in the Middle <laughs> East, whether <laughs> right. it's a or you know wherever," um, has always been met with this, you know, uh, horrible cataclysm, you know, of where it just it does not does not work. Um, so you have to address these realities and. Um, what I want to talk a little uh, first about uh, Europe, and then maybe bring it into the United States. Um, how do you see um, uh, the conflict of um, you know Islam and kind of the modern world uh, playing out in Europe? Europe is very secular; it's, it's very it's, it's different in that way from the United States. Um, so, how do you? Um, you know, it's also not monolithic, right? I mean, it's it's a, a, a ton of separate countries yeah. that are that are all on a range and a, um, a scale of acceptance and liberalism and, and democracy or illiberalism. So, I mean, how do you see um, Islam being perhaps? Detrimental to the future of Europe? Is there a way in which it's it's it could be detrimental, which maybe a lot of people on the secular side will argue, um, or do you see that there's a way in which it can be helpful and that it it provides a uh, a space for religious conversation. It forces the religious forces, conversation, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, so w- what's really interesting in Europe is that if you look at the rise of these right wing populist parties throughout the continent, they're quite different in different ways, but there is one connective thread that almost all of them share. And that's this preoccupation or even obsession with Islam. And that might sound odd in the sense that in some European countries, there are very few Muslims. So how is it possible that Muslims and Islam can be such a subject for controversy and debate where they're like 1% or 3% or whatever, but... Muslims in Europe, and they're a growing population, obviously, it's not just about minority rights. It's not just about questions of anti-Muslim bigotry or Islamophobia or racism or immigration. It's also that Muslims are a proxy. They're, They're a kind of metaphor for a deeper set of questions that European democracies are grappling with. Because just by being there, European Muslims bring out questions of the role of religion in public life. Why? Because European Muslims tend to, on average, be quite a bit more practicing, more observant, uh, more observant. And on on all the polling we have makes this pretty clear. And sometimes the gaps of religious observance are quite large when, for example, in countries like Norway, Sweden, France, weekly church attendance is 10 percent or lower. It's it's hard to find practicing Christians. Not all Muslims in Europe are practicing, and depending on the country, it tends to be somewhere around 50%, depending on what the indicator of observance is. But if it's 50% and the rest of the population is 10%, that's a huge gap, and it's very noticeable, especially in cities where there's a large Muslim population. So in that sense, it forces it forces Europeans to ask questions that they thought that they were past. They thought, oh, we've become secular. We've worked out these issues. No one, very few people are that religious anymore. We're moving into this secular progressive space where we all agree on questions of gender equality, gay rights and all that. But if you have more conservative, more observant Muslims who don't necessarily share those liberal premises, then you have to have these debates. So in that sense, Questions around, questions around Muslims or Islam are a proxy for, um, yeah, so gay rights, gender equality, sexual freedom, demographic changes, national identity, cultural identity. What does it mean to be Danish? What does it mean to be Swedish? Um, like the list goes on and it also brings out the decline of Christianity. So when people see that there's something more resonant or resilient about Islam's role in the public sphere, sometimes that can lead to a sense of insecurity where people who have a Christian heritage are saying, well, why don't we have that? Why have we lost our Christianity? And there was this um, famous quote from Angela Merkel of some years back where she said, the problem in Europe is not that we have too much Islam, it's that we have too little Christianity. And that's a very clear way of how the presence of Muslims in Germany forced was was pushing Angela Merkel and other Germans to say, "Well, what happened to our Christianity?" Right, um, and then it it so if 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 Muslims are are playing this different role in some of these more secular European countries, then I think it pushes Europeans to talk about pluralism. How do we live with deep difference? Because I think, unfortunately especially in the more aggressively secular countries like France the answer of most french uh, french people is to say well muslims have to become more secular they have to embrace this they can't show they can't show religiosity in the public sphere as someone who believes in a deeper pluralism i don't see how that's the right answer i don't see how it's sustainable you can't force people to be secular and if you do try to if you do force people to be secular that can lead to a lot of backlash and alienation, where you're basically telling French Muslims that they have to choose between being fully French and then being fully Muslim. And is that a reasonable thing to ask a citizen to choose between two important identities to them? And that, that goes back to what I was saying earlier, that the American approach is much more forgiving and open and pluralistic, again, up until now. We'll see if that continues, right? So you're talking about Europe, and
0: you're talking about kind of the, the, the conflict between, um, uh, you know, secular societies that have kind of given over their own religious heritage, whether it's Christianity or or whatever, and now they're confronted with this this very observant uh, kind of, you know, Muslim minority, maybe punches above its weight, you know. Um, and when we come to, to the U.S., I mean, the U.S. is far more ostensibly religious. I mean, you know, everyone admits to being, you know, very religious, except maybe in academia and kind of... <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, New York City, where I live. Uh, you know, it's it's a different uh, a different ball game. But there is um, there is this ascent to an acceptance of religiosity, and yet we still, many of us in America, and I think increasingly on the on the right, right on the on the conservative side, um, uh, since nine eleven, and I think maybe it has only grown and maybe exacerbated, uh, are are still uncomfortable with the the Muslim. Manifestation of that kind of expression, right? So, um, the call to prayer in a, in a predominantly, you know, Muslim town, or they're they're frequently throughout the South, um, as as uh, Muslims immigrate from other parts of the world and 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 populate out into other areas other than cities or dense urban areas. Um, you know, they'll build a mosque or they'll build an Islamic cultural center or something, and there are people within these towns that are uncomfortable with that, even in this open and accepting America, right, you know. Um, so talk a little bit about how, uh, do you see, it, maybe even in a religious country like the United States, um, and even, a, a, you know, people would uh, uh, assent to be, we're a Christian country. I mean, people would would probably, a majority of Americans would say that America is a, a Christian country. How do you see, do you see this a similar kind of... Uh, the arrival of Islam, the arrival of, of Muslims into America, and and a greater maybe um, focus within the media and even mm. popular media on on Islam is forcing some of those same questions, whereas maybe Americans had kind of reconciled to where we're all heading towards kind of secularism, we may not all be there, we're Americans, so you can be religious, you can be secular, but wait, Islam's here you know, hijabs are in my, you know, Walmart or whatever out in America. This is making me feel kind of uncomfortable. Do you see a similar, any similar trends along that line? Or do you think America is still broad and deep enough to kind of just absorb without questioning?
1: Well, so this is where I think some of the foundational differences between Christianity and Islam matter. That when some Americans, so one question that I get a lot when I speak to audiences in different parts of the country is Sharia. Um, and it's a tough one because you could spend hours talking about it, but I think on the right that one one trope you hear a lot, and you might recall that Newt Gingrich uh, during the, the campaign in twenty sixteen, when he was supporting Trump, he he made this uh, he made some big statements about how American Muslims should disavow Sharia, right? Because the Sharia is ostensibly in conflict with the Constitution. I think Sharia is hard for some Christians to understand because there is no equivalent in Christianity. I mean, the closest thing you have is canon law, but canon law is still quite a bit different. And if you're a Protestant, then there's really, I mean, you don't have Protestants going around in America talking about implementing Christian law. I mean, for the, for the, the vast majority, at least. I mean, there might, yeah. So, um, but Sharia isn't just about public law. It's also about private practice. So when Ginrich is talking about um, disavowing Sharia, no Muslim can really disavow it because you wouldn't know how to pray, you wouldn't know how to fast, you so wouldn't would cease to be a Muslim. Yeah, you know, like you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Sharia is is not is is all in, it it covers a lot of different ground, and it's just an unreasonable expectation. And there's also different interpretations of Sharia. So when people hear Sharia, they th- they think, oh, um, strict, harsh, imposing, but. As in any any vast religion with a rich tradition, there are going to be more progressive interpretations and more conservative interpretations. So you can, you can have an American Muslim who is Sharia oriented, but who has like a pretty broad minded progressive interpretation. You know, so that that's one thing. Uh, what what I think is unfortunate is that you would think that because Christian evangelicals have to deal with the distrust of secular Americans towards their own public religious practice, that they would be sympathetic to American Muslims and to people wearing the headscarf, because there are similar debates about the public role of religion. But unfortunately, um, Christian evangelicals um, express some of the highest levels of anti-Muslim sentiment based on various polls that have come out in the last couple years. And that to me is something that all of us have to find ways to work on. That's a major concern that I have. Um, What, you know, what do you do about it? Um, The other thing that I would say about American Muslims, which should, which could, I guess, allay some of the fears of, of Christian Christians in this country is the bigger problem in America is in creeping Sharia. And a friend of mine has made this argument you know, in, in more depth, Mustafa Akyal who, who writes for the New York Times, he said, it's not creeping Sharia, the issue that's happening in the American Muslim community now is creeping liberalism. That American Muslims, because in part, because they've been embraced by the Democratic Party and they become part of the intersectional solidarity thing that's going on, that um, they have moved in this more prog- progressive direction And there's some fascinating survey research of how young Muslims in particular in America have um, well over 50 percent now support gay marriage, where 15 years ago it was a much smaller number. So there is this shift going on um, where Muslims, because they are identifying as one of the core constituencies of the Democratic Party, are making common cause with the LGBT Q community or African Americans, Hispanics, uh, even when it, you know, so that that is um, that and that is changing American Islam in in certain ways. So people shouldn't be freaking out because um, and if if anything, it's conservative Muslims who I know who are worried that their fellow American Muslims are becoming too liberal, that they're diluting their faith, that the American integration story is so strong that what's going to happen to our children or grandchildren, how much of Islam are we going to be able to keep? And that's where I think you get this interesting new, um, some interesting new ideas where some Christian conservatives are talking about how to make common cause with conservative Muslims who similarly feel under threat from the dominant secular, cultural, uh, cultural elite, if you will. And that to me is a really interesting space. And one of the people who's talked a lot about this is Rod Dreher, who has said things like that he feels that he has more in common with a conservative, observant, American Muslim neighbor than he would with um, a, a nominally Christian neighbor who doesn't really believe in Christianity all that much theologically and is is woke and is progressive and all of that. So um, that could be, that could be an area where where there there at least can be more dialogue between conservative Christians and conservative Muslims who are dealing with some of these same challenges of how do you hold on to religion in a very secular culture, especially if you live in a major city. I, I live in DC and it's not super common uh, to meet outward Christians, people who are explicitly identifying as we're Christians and we're proud of it, um, and that shows the kind of broader divide we have in America. It really depends on where you live, too. Um, so Sure. I think it's uh, where there is the
0: greatest, I think, possibility for um, a partnership is uh, in the idea of just pluralism, like having... Uh, allowing for a space and creating a space legally and maintaining that and defending it uh, that allows for disparate opinions to coexist, right? I mean, that I can think there there are parts of Islam that are are dangerous, but I'm going to defend the right of every Muslim in America to be a Muslim and to not have to give up Sharia. I mean, to me, the idea that, you know, that what Newt Gingrich, you know, kind of profited out, you know, in 2016 is a, is a liberalism that is you see on the rise. I think in in conservatism. Uh, that is that reaches well beyond what I think even—they would call themselves like constitutional originalists and, and you know, kind of— um, but the whole point of uh, the First Amendment is that the government does not reach into your religion and tell yeah. you what parts of it you believe or don't believe, or what parts you should shed or what parts you, you know, should keep. That is not the government's territory, and the, the what makes America beautiful, what makes it great, what makes it, I think, successful among nations— is that we allow for freedom of conscience and freedom of, of, of soul that you can believe you can be an American and you can be a bad Christian, a good Christian, a bad Muslim, a good Muslim, but you the main loyalty you know that you should have is to the creation of this kind of American American space. So I think there's there's huge potential there, um, but I would want to lean into this that it's still an awkward potential right it's an pluralism is an awkward uncomfortable tense thing I think I mean uh, it's it's and what I, I hear a lot in your writing as, as we kind of uh, kind of wrap up our conversation and, and uh, just what I hear a lot in your writing is to embrace that tension right to not there there's an idea of uh, there's, a, I think, an intellectual laziness that exists, maybe on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, I hear a lot, though. Uh, I would say, you know, in, in kind of liberalism, secularism, progressivism that just says, uh, "Hey, you know, just get on board. You know, like, can't we all just get along? Can't we all agree? Can not all nations agree? Can all, you know, uh, kind of the pacifist tropes that that say uh, there are no, we're all humans, uh, we that we are no different." Um, but America's designed, uh, and I think, again, what's made it successful, it's designed to be combative, it's designed to be deliberative, and it's designed to create spaces where um, uh, in inviolable opinions uh, confront one another and kind of muck it out and hash it out. So, uh, I mean, what... And you're in kind of closing thoughts, thinking about pluralism, the future of pluralism. Are you optimistic uh, about kind of the, the, the American experiment or do you see threats on the horizon um, on either side, whether it's the right or the left, that, are, that would men, head towards kind of an illiberal solution that says, well, there is no space for you if you are a Muslim, someone yeah, from the right well, might say, or there is no space uh, for you if you are a Christian and you don't believe in gay marriage, or you're Muslim and you don't believe in gay marriage, or, you know, what's yeah, yeah. what's your forecasting out? Well, are you hopeful or optimistic or pessimistic? I or? mean,
1: one worry I have is that Americans on, on both sides are becoming, it seems to me, more uncomfortable with difference, that they want the other side to bend to their vision of what America should be. And that's why I actually worry when, when people talk a lot about finding consensus or getting Americans to agree on, on key principles, that sounds nice in theory. And I think a lot of us will say, oh, that's great. But if we as Americans no longer agree on some of those foundational questions the search for consensus can actually turn out to be a bit coercive because we're asking other people to join into what we think the consensus should be. And we're almost trying to force that consensus. So I don't think that you can have, so you know, even debates within conservatism, the whole like David French and Saharaaba Mare debate, that's on the right. But take the right, the left, and all the disagreements in between, um, We're such a diverse pluralistic country that um, I don't think we can go back to this, and was it ever really true anyway, where we all agreed on what it meant to be American. Do we have to all agree on what it means to be American? I don't think that we can really go back to that. And the only way we could is if one side gains enough power and essentially forces the other into submission and says, hey, we won, we're winning elections, you got to sign on to our vision. And I see that both on on the left and the right. And that's why fights over the Supreme Court um, get at this because the idea is if you have, this is the final arbiter of, 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 of law. And if the Supreme Court decides something, the other side has to basically just, you know, suck it up. I worry about that kind of winner takes all approach to politics. I see politics as inherently conflictual and conflict isn't something to be ended or resolved because we were fighting over legitimate differences and we should be able to hold on to those differences and respect and ultimately to respect them and that's where you have to make a kind of leap of faith and say okay we disagree on what it means to be American but you know what we're a big enough country where you can hold on to those beliefs and I can hold on to my beliefs and this is where I think federalism becomes important because you do allow space for some some regional autonomy states can kind of take a different approach depending on their own cultural context um but this is why i think when we're talking about these issues we really have to make the case for accepting difference and and explaining to people why differences are good for democracy um and I don't know, I mean, this is where, uh, not to go into like a whole riff about like Christian pluralism, but, you know, uh, you know, Providence is a journal that is influenced by some of these Christian pluralist ideas that are, that kind of trace back to various theologians. One of them is um, the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper. And those ideas, and as a Muslim, um, those some of those Christian pluralist or even Christian realist ideas have been... Inspiring and influential for me, because that shows you can have deep theological uh, conviction, as Abraham Kuyper did. But he also said that there is an imperfectibility about this world. Um, we can't achieve final, final victory here. That's only possible in the next life, and we have to have an epistemological humility about this world. And, you know, we're all broken by sin, we're fallen by sin, and perfection is only possible with the return of Christ, so on and so forth. So some of these ideas, I think, can be applied to a lot of different religious traditions where judgment only comes with God, and that's not for this world, right? So I think every tradition has to draw on these pluralistic ideas. We have to maybe search for them and find them, but they're there. And I think they can help inform some of this debate.
0: Well, I wish we could continue the <laughs> conversation. I wish uh, we, and, and hopefully I think we, we will in the future. I appreciate, appreciate your contributions and your, um, your perspective. Uh, Shadi Hamid is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and uh, the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World by St. Martin's Press. Uh, Shadi, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Drew.
1: Gr- great to be with you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com. Follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.